you bow with me and let's pray. Father, as we uh, hopefully have uh, focused our minds and softened our hearts before you through our time with each other, through our time in worship, uh, focusing on you, I pray, God, that um, we now be receptive to your word. I pray, God, that you might speak to us as your revelation has done so for thousands of years to your people, and I pray, God, that you would do so now. So we're receptive, we're open, we're looking to you, and uh, we submit ourselves before you now into your truth. And we pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. Good. Uh, Well, one thing that is uh, common and universal to all human beings, one thing that everybody here and that's watching online and in our venues uh, share is this capacity for fear. It's a capacity for fear. Each and every one of us here knows what fear feels like. We've all experienced it, and I don't care how tough you think you are or how hard-shelled you are in your life, we all know fear. And the list of the things that we fear is almost endless. We fear job loss, our children's future, economic downturns. We fear spousal rejection, loss of health, embarrassing situations. I'm just getting ramped up. We fear, fear pain, God, crime, others not like us, dying, loss of control, change. And, and even those who seem to have surrounded themselves with lots of money and success, security and comfort, aren't immune at all to fear. In my study this week, I, I ran across some, an article that just talked about the fears of celebrities and even people from history. Uh, In this article, it talked about how Jennifer Aniston, Cher, and Whoopi Goldberg are all afraid of flying, Uh, how Barbara Streisand is afraid of strangers, how Michael Jackson, when he was alive, was haunted by the fear of contamination and disease. Uh, It talks about Woody Allen. He kind of takes the cake. Uh, Self-confessedly, Woody Allen is afraid of insects, sunshine, dogs, deer, bright colors, children heights, small rooms, crowds, and cancer and you thought you were messed up. And then it talks about people even from history. Uh, George Washington uh, was said to be scared of being buried alive. (laughs) When I read that, I thought, well, who isn't afraid of that? I mean, I'm I'm afraid of that. Uh, Richard Nixon was terrified of hospitals. Napoleon Bonaparte was afraid of cats. Uh, You get the idea. Uh, Whether rational or irrational, one thing that is common to human beings, and nobody escapes it, is this idea of fear. And and what even puts the nail in the coffin of this idea that we all experience fear is then the Bible. Because the Bible cites fear on almost every page. And there isn't a part of the Bible I could think of in, in which human fear is not referenced. You read the Bible closely and you will find in the Bible fear of God's presence, fear of Jesus, fear of inner exposure of the heart, fear of war, fear of others, fear of persecution, fear of rejection, fear of financial loss, fear of death, fear of messing up, fear of failure, fear of being hurt. I mean, on and on and on. The Bible's like one big anthology of fear. And so with this said, this idea that fear is something that we're all going to experience in life, it shouldn't surprise us then. That as we continue in our look at things that can kill faith and cause doubt in our lives, that fear is going to make the list. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. 
that as we make our way through two chapters in the Gospel of John, we've been declaring this for the last few weeks, we're going to note seven things in these two chapters that are all seeds of doubt, things that can create doubt in our walk with God and sabotage our faith. And today we come to a very well-known story that involves Jesus and his disciples, and it's going to teach us that fear is one of the things that can create doubt. So I'm going to read the story for you in just a minute here, but before I do, let me fill you in on the context so that we're all clear on what's going on here. Uh, Jesus and his followers are at this point in northeast Galilee along the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and you might remember from our previous weeks that it's been quite a day. Uh, Jesus had spent the entire day teaching the large crowd, and then he followed that up by feeding 5,000 people miraculously. Remember that, five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people are fed. So it's now evening, and they want to get back to, Jesus and his disciples want to get back to their home base, which is in Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so let's read about what happens next, John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. This is what it says. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I, do not be afraid.'" Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, this seems like a very straightforward, if not simple story, though miraculous in nature, that John is telling us here. I mean, this is a story that all of our kids learn about in Sunday school, but one of the things that you and I are going to see today is that there's a lot more going on in the details here that then meets the eye. And so let's spend a few moments right now getting the details down. Uh, Two other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, also record this event. And in their versions, they give us details that John doesn't hear that are very important. So, for instance, in their versions, they tell us that the reason that Jesus initially stayed back and sent the disciples on ahead was so that he could pray. You guys got to remember, it had been a very long day. He had been teaching the crowd all day. He just performed his fourth miracle as recorded in the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus stays back to spend time with God the Father. He wanted to be alone with him and to recharge his, his spiritual batteries by being with the Father. So the disciples go on ahead. They get into the boat. They start rowing across the northeast end of the Sea of Galilee to the northwest end where Capernaum was. Uh, so I put a map here for you so you can see this. This will be real important. You understand the geography of this. This is northern Israel. Syria is up here. And, and Jerusalem is way down here, northern Israel. And this is the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples, as best we can understand, are here at the northwest end of it. They've gone up into the mountains for the feeding of the 5,000. And now they're making their way across this lake, the top part of it here, to where Capernaum is on the northeast end. And as they get into about the center of the north end of the lake, Mark tells us they were out on the sea, and John tells us they had been rowing about three or four miles, the wind picks up and the waves increase greatly. Now, this is really important that you understand what John is telling us here and why. 
This is not going to be what creates fear in the disciples. He's just telling us about the scene. And the reason that this wind and waves aren't going to be what freak out the disciples is twofold. One is that this happened quite often on the Sea of Galilee. You might not know this, but the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. And the reason that's important is because you have the mountainous range up here just west of the Sea of Galilee. you got the Mediterranean Sea over here. And the weather patterns come off the Mediterranean Sea down these mountainous region here into this 600 feet below sea level lake and it picks up speed. And so it's not unusual at all for there to be weather patterns on the Sea of Galilee that create tumultuous conditions. That was a usual occurrence. Second reason that wouldn't have freaked out the disciples is why? Because their craft was they were fishermen. Many of them were. So they spent a lot of time on this. It would not be an unusual occurrence. The reason that John wants us to know that this was happening is because they were going to have to row hard to get to the other side, and it was taking some time. And so uh, that's, what, that's a scene that's going on here, that they're rowing across the, the, the sea here. The wind and waves are, are, are picking up. And it's at this point that Jesus comes walking on the water to them. Miracle number five that John will record. And, and he gets near the boat, and it's this that the disciples freak out at. It says in verse 19 that they were frightened. Again, not at the wind and the waves. They were frightened. The word actually means terrified. It's the Greek word phobeo, where we get the word phobia from. They were just terrified. And, 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 and they were terrified at seeing Jesus. Now, we have to wrestle with why. Uh, John seems to insinuate in, if all you read was John's account here, John seems to insinuate that the reason that they were terrified is because they weren't expecting Jesus to be walking on the water. It was a surprise miracle. Unlike the other ones that they saw coming from a mile away, like the feeding of the 5,000 because Jesus involved them, or even turning water into wine because he kind of precursored that with a, a discussion, this one comes out of nowhere, and it takes the disciples off guard, and that's what John seems to insinuate. They were just afraid of that. But you got to read the other accounts too, and I have, because what Matthew and Mark add to this is that the reason they were also afraid is because they couldn't comprehend how a human being could ever walk on water and so they didn't actually believe it was Jesus. Mark and Matthew tell us that they thought it was a ghost, a phantom, and this I guess would freak anybody out. And so what I need you to see, the reason that's important, is that contained in their fear was doubt. Contained in their being afraid, they doubted that that was really Jesus that was before them. Even though they knew the Son of God had already committed four miracles, even though the Son of God had already told them who he was, even though they had every reason to believe that Jesus could walk on water, their surprise and their fear fueled their already burgeoning doubt. That's what I need you to see here. The fear and doubt were riding tandem together in this scene. 
And then if you don't buy that still, if you're saying, well, God, that's kind of sketchy, Jamie. I'm not sure that's really there. Well, let me show you how it really is here. Again, you got to read the other, other texts. Matthew adds something that makes this completely clear. After Jesus tries calming their fears by saying, it is I, do not be afraid, which we'll get to in a minute, Matthew adds a scene right at this point. It's inserted right after Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid, that for whatever reason, John and Mark chose not to include. Let me read it for you. Look up here on the screen. Matthew chapter 14, 28 through 31. Right after Jesus is standing on the water saying, It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, you sense him doubting there, if it is really you, then command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, Come. So Peter, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you, say it with me, doubt? So there it is. He was afraid, and in his fear, he doubted. But, but we know he was doubting even before that. Lord, if it's you, if it's you, then let me partake in this miracle as well. And even when Jesus invited him into the miracle, he didn't have enough faith to be a part of it. He still was doubting. So guys, no matter how you slice it, what you have here in this entire scene is the disciples experiencing fear. And what I need you to see is that within this fear rises doubt. Doubt when it comes to whether or not they can trust Jesus in who he said he is and even to do what he had already been doing. And once you and I see this, the connection between fear and doubt, which is really the heart of this story, we're now ready to see how this same pattern proves true for you and me even today. So let's say it like this. This is point one on your outline in principle form. And that is that fear in your life can and will lead to doubt. That's the first takeaway of two that we're going to look at in this story. You have to see this because I'm telling you, it happens all the time. You know, I, I don't know why. I, maybe it's just because I'm getting older. But I've told you guys on a regular basis that I've been a Christian for 34 years. I, you probably already have that memorized because I, for some reason, keep saying it. I don't know why. I'm just counting the years till I go home to be with the Lord. So 34 years, I, I've been a Christian now. And I, I became a Christian in 1981. And by about 1986, I'd been a Christian for five years and I got to tell you, for the first five years of my Christianity, I was just on fire. C.S. Lewis would eventually say it well in his writings. He called it the first fervor that you have for the Lord. And boy, did I ever have a first fervor. I, I mean, I couldn't shut up about talking about God. Some of you say, well, you don't shut up now about talking about God. But I mean, I couldn't shut up at all back then about talking about God. And, and, and I drove my fraternity brothers nuts and, 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 and everybody at my college nuts and eventually they just basically said, become a pastor so that you can do this for a living because like, you don't stop talking about God. And I was just on fire about God uh, for, for five years, like totally. And then something happened. Uh, I graduated from college in 1986 and I enrolled in seminary beginning in the fall of 86. And that summer, I started to experience a level of fear and anxiety that I had never experienced at that point in my life. And psychologists would describe what I was experiencing, and some of you have gone through this as well, uh, what we call free-floating anxiety or panic attacks. 
Many men don't struggle with them. Many women do, which is an odd thing, but men do struggle with them, and I'm glad when men are honest about them. I experiencing, was experiencing them full bore. I, I would just start sweating. I would be in a panic mode, and I didn't know why. And the panic itself made me even more afraid and terrorized me. And I can remember thinking that summer, I don't think I'm fit for seminary. I mentioned my dad. I was thinking about not going to seminary. And this ended up being part of my problem is my dad said, well, you're not welcome to stay home. And uh, you're going to seminary. So I drove to Chicago. And my fear was so strong, guys. I mean, I eventually would get counseling for this. And counseling helped immensely. helped me understand a lot of where my fears were coming from. They were deep-seated in my development as a kid. But it was so bad that I was studying Greek that year. And I would study Greek for an hour, and my heart would be beating so fast, and it had nothing to do with Greek, that I'd actually get up to get up and take a half an hour walk. So it would be an hour of study, a half an hour walk, an hour of study, a half an hour of walk. And it was just literally, I mean, years this went on of just intense fear. Even when I first went to the pastor in 1990, I had a tremendous amount of fear. And my first church helped me work through it a lot. The reason I tell you that story is because Interestingly, when the fear started in 1986, you know what else I started to battle that same year? You guessed it, doubt. I mean, obviously I doubted my calling. I remember that whole year thinking, I'm not fit to be a minister. I mean, what, who wants a minister that's riddled with fear? Who wants a minister that's going to have panic attacks? Who wants a, a minister that, that has to study for an hour and then take a walk for half an hour? And I, I began doubting whether God really called me to the ministry. But even more than that, I, I also started to wrestle with doubt in my walk with God. Up to that point, he had answered most every prayer I ever had. And I remember the first time I had a panic attack, I prayed for God to take it away. I don't know if you guys have ever read 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10. Paul the Apostle has this thorn in the flesh, and he says, three times I prayed for the Lord to take it away from me, and he didn't. I prayed 300 times for God to take these panic attacks away, and he didn't. And there were times where I'd wonder, is this even real? Is he real? Is my salvation real? And I was, again, not really fit to be a minister in those times, but I'm glad it was my freshman year of seminary that I was going through this. And though I eventually worked through my, a lot of my fears and eventually worked through a lot of my insecurities, and it took years to do so, guys, I got to tell you, I'm thankful for that experience, and I'll tell you why, and that's that what it taught me, and this has allowed me to help you as well as me, is that this idea of fear leading to doubt happens a lot in our lives. And it doesn't take just panic attacks to do it. I deal with people now who, who are going through a crumbling marriage and they doubt that God can really do anything about it. I have people in my life right now who are going through financial ruin and they really wonder if God's going to provide for them. We fear that our kids are going to make bonehead decisions in life and when they do, we wonder if God's really going to hear our prayers. We fear a changing nation right before us. I hear this a lot at a place like Scasta Bible Church. It's going downhill right in front of us. And we wonder if God is going to sustain his people. Or how about this one? We fear our eventual death because all of us are going to die some days. And even Christians doubt whether or not, I've heard them say this, God's going to receive them into heaven. And again, what you need to see, because this is the real kicker with all these examples, is that it's not that we don't understand the promises of God, we do. 
I mean, every example I just gave you, the people that struggle with this, they know that God wants to restore broken marriages. They know that God provides for his own. They know that he responds to prayers. They know that he sustains his people. And they know that he receives believers unto himself upon death. So it's not that we don't know the promises of God. Watch this. It's just that our fear robs us of our ability to trust the promises of God. And that's what we need to see. That fear is that, pow- that powerful of a motivation. It can grip you by the neck. I have been there. And so have some of you. And it can rob your faith right from under you. And when you don't have faith, by very necessity, you're going to have doubt. And so like the disciples, here, here's what hit me about this text this week. I thought many of us are like the disciples. We can handle the wind and the waves of life. Can you own that today? We're good, we're successful, we're strong, we got a lot of ingenuity. We can handle the wind and waves, just like the disciples did. But when it comes to our ability to trust Jesus, who is right before us all the time, our fear keeps us at times from faith and allows doubt to take hold. So please see this. We're going to move on right now. But fear truly is a faith killer. It's a seed of doubt. And we all know it and we experience it. We're not too far off from the original disciples. But enough negativity. Because you see, the flip side is this, that Jesus has a plan. He really does. He has a surefire recipe for dealing with our fear. And when you look close, it's found right in the story before us today. It's found tucked away in the details of the last two verses of this amazing story. I want to read them for you again now and point out a couple of things, verses 20 and 21. And so again, get the context right. After the wind and waves have swept up, after Jesus has come out walking to them on the water, and after the disciples have experienced fear that now is fueling their doubt, is it you, Lord? This is what happens next. It says, but he, Jesus, said to them. Focus on that word said. And what did he say? It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, there's some couple of things going on here in the weeds, no pun intended, uh, that you don't want to miss. There's more going on in this story than many of us realize. And I put them in yellow on the screen here. Notice first, it says, but he said to them. It's easy to miss this. They heard his voice. He spoke to them. And the very act of speaking is going to begin to turn their fear into gladness. Don't let this pass by you. The mere sound of his voice started to do something in the disciples in which fear was starting to dissipate. He said to them. And as you're chewing on that, notice secondly the content of Jesus' speaking to them. Three little words that can kill fear. It is I. And then he says, do not be afraid. But focus on those three words, it is I. And I got to tell you, I'm a little disappointed in the English rendering here of our current translation, but they all have the same translation. I did a lot of study on this this week, and so I don't know to this day why they do this, but this actually is not a great translation. It is I. Let me explain why. 
These three English words here, it is I, are actually only two words in the original Greek that the Gospel of John was written in some 2,000 years ago. And the Greek words are ego emi, ego emi. Ego means I, and emi means am. This is what you would find in the Greek text that John wrote about 90 AD when he was penning his Gospels, that Jesus said, ego emi. Say that with me, ego emi, ego emi. One more time, ego emi. When Lucas Cooper was here a little while back, about a year ago, he was talking about the same phrase because it appears a lot, you'll see, in the Gospel of John. And, and, and he had you guys repeat it too. And the way he said it was, I was watching online, he said, ego emi. You know, and then he had you guys say, ego And I texted him, I said, what's with the Spanish translation of that? Like, I'm going, it's not ego emi. I said, it's ego emi. It's lego my ego. And so it's, it's ego emi. And you guys now have, say it with me again, ego emi. Good. And you can tease Lucas next time he's here about how he doesn't know how to pronounce the Greek. The most literal way to translate this is I am. I am. Jesus will use this phrase, now watch this, no less than seven times from this point forward in the Gospel of John. And you're saying, what's the big deal? I am. It is I. The etymology of these words would not have been lost on the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day. You see, these words are a direct quote from a very powerful account in the Old Testament where Moses was on the mountain with God. And God tells Moses to go back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. <laughs> and in a sense, Moses says, God, well, says to God, you know, God, uh, I'm not sure that's going to do it for Pharaoh. And I'm not sure his people are going to buy it either. And so is there anything more I should say to the Israelites and to Pharaoh? And God says to Moses these famous words in Exodus 3, verse 14. You'll now get it. It says, God said to Moses, I am, pause right there, in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, what do you think those Greek words are? Ego and me. I am who I am. And God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Whoa. What most theologians point out is that this phrase, I am, is an ontological phrase. It's all about being the very essence of who God is. It doesn't have anything to do with God's doing. It has to do with his being. It has to do with ontology. It's the all-encompassing, eternally existent, ever-present God. That's who was speaking to Moses on the mountain, and that's who's sending him to Pharaoh and the Israelites. And what's even fascinating here is that God hijacks this very simple phrase and makes it his name. Did you catch that? Tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. And what's even most fascinating is that Jesus then uses this exact same phrase, ego and me, I am, in this account with the disciples when he's trying to quell their fears. And this is why I say it goes way beyond it is I. Rather, it mimics the great I am statement of God to Moses and only the Son of God could use a phrase like this because he himself is God come to the disciples. And so simply notice Jesus is using a divine name of God to refer to himself and still the fears of the disciples, which is why he quickly adds, do not be afraid. 
And so I add all this up. We're now at the mountaintop. These fear-filled, doubt-fueled disciples hear Jesus' voice. He said to them, and then what does he say to them? I am. Do not be afraid. And when you add those things together, I'm going to argue, voice and then words, what do we call that today? We call that the presence of somebody with us. And so it was the very presence of Jesus with the disciples that quelled their fears. And sure enough, it did, because it says at this point that they were then glad to take him into the boat. And guys, what I need you to see is that this really is all about presence, because this is what presence is, and this is what presence does. We all know this. Presence is simply the voice and words of one who is with you that can make all the difference. And what presence does is provide needed comfort and security that can deal adequately with our fears. I mean, if you're a parent here today or a grandparent, this is exactly what you do with your kids. You got a three-year-old and he or she gets hurt or they're afraid. And what is it that takes away their fear? Your presence, <laughs> your voice, your words, you're holding them, takes away their fear. And as adults, even, because some of you are saying, well, we're not kids anymore. Yeah, well, as adults, when you're afraid on a human level, what is it that can deal adequately with your fear? I'm telling you, it's the presence of a good friend or a trusted family member or even a proven pastor that many times provides the needed words and voice to calm your fears. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that when a child of God is riddled with fear, it is only his presence that can turn the tide of doubt back to faith. You're saying, well, how do I experience his presence? <laughs> we talk about that all the time around here. <laughs> you experience his presence through being with him in regular quiet time, reading his word and learning to pray. You experience his presence through times of worship, privately and in community, where you sing and focus your thoughts on him. You experience his presence in Christian community, getting honest with other believers, confessing sin and opening up your life and allowing them to be a part of your spiritual journey. There are many ways we experience his presence. What I simply need you to see is that when we experience his presence... When we hear his voice and the content of his words, that that is the only thing that has the power to turn our fear back to faith and take away our doubt. But you got to put yourself in the pathway of his presence. You have to be open and receptive to his voice and to his words. Because you see, when you do, and this is the second thing I want you to take away with you today, is that Jesus' presence really can dispel fear and restore faith. That's the point is that his presence is enough to deal with your fear. I, I want to close by uh, telling you a story, a very true story. It's a rather moving story. It's something that happened to me recently. And, and the, the reason I want to tell you this story is because I think that, then I don't want to be morose about this, but I really believe that death <laughs> is, is the real test and even testimony of how you and I handle fear. I, I hope you'd agree with that. Billy, Billy Graham, who was not known to ever be funny, once said something I thought was hilarious. He said, death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all going to get a chance to participate. <laughs> and, and he's right. I, I don't want to scare some of you today. I really don't. I'm here to try to help you with your fears. But someday, every one of you and everybody at our venues and campus, you're going to die. You are. 
It's an inevitable fact. Someday, all of us, our bodies are going to start, stop working, and we're going to give an account to God. That's what the Bible makes very clear, and experience certainly shows that. And yet, with that known reality that all of us are going to experience, I'm amazed at how many of us are terrified of death, and even many Christians. I mean, man, I spend a lot of time with people who are dying, and, and I don't judge it. I really don't, because I understand. I understand fear. I've had anxiety myself. But I'm amazed at how many people are just terrified at death. And, and I guess when you think about it, there's some good reasons for it. I mean, death is unknown. It's mysterious. For some people, it's very painful. And, and so there's a lot that, that, that would create fear when it comes to death. And yet I'm telling you, it's in the presence of God and the presence of Jesus that even at terrifying times like death, fear runs out the door. Two and a half weeks ago, I flew to Columbus. I fly in every uh, quarter to see my parents, Columbus, Ohio. And I, uh, I usually go for just 24 hours. My parents are in their 80s, and it's very meaningful for their oldest son to visit them. So I fly in on a Monday morning. I get there Monday afternoon, and I leave Tuesday afternoon, and I'm, and I'm back here in Scottsdale. And uh, for some reason, about six months ago, and this will be relevant to the story, um, American Airlines, which is what I use in U.S. Airways, um, they stopped the direct flight from Columbus to Phoenix on Tuesday night. Weirdest thing. They offer it Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. They offer one in the morning. They just don't offer one anymore on Tuesday nights about six months ago. And I hate connecting flights, especially on a trip that short. So I decided the last two visits to extend my stay from Monday to Wednesday to see mom and dad. So I flew in on a Monday, got there Monday night, flew out Wednesday evening. They live about two hours north of Columbus, so I get a rental car, drive up to their little farming town, and, and I spend now 48 hours with them. Uh, on this particular trip, two and a half weeks ago, I got in Monday night, had dinner with mom and dad, and then uh, breakfast the next day, and then we took a short trip, and then uh, lunch. And as I got back in the middle of the afternoon, I got a call from a dear friend in Detroit named Kim, same name as my wife, but a different Kim, and she said, um, Fred has gone from bad to worse, and he's dying. The backstory is, is that Fred was one of my best friends. Fred is what I call a pallbearer friend. You should all have them. Six people that when you die will carry your casket. Uh, I'm now down to five, but Fred is my uh, pallbearer friend. And uh, I, I, I have five others. I'm looking for a sixth, so be nice to me. And Fred was one of my pallbearer friends. And um, Fred last March got diagnosed with cancer. And they caught it very late. He's only 60 years old, uh, prime of his life, working hard, two boys, couple of grandkids. And Fred was the chairman of the board for years at my first church that I served at during all my fearful days for nine years in Detroit. He and I have just climbed the hill together. We've been through the ringer and we've been blood brothers ever since then. When Fred got diagnosed last March, I jumped on a plane immediately. Didn't even blink about it. Just booked a ticket and I flew to Detroit and I drove up to his home in Troy and I surprised him. I said to Kim, don't even tell him I'm coming. <laughs> and, and I knocked on the door, and uh, Fred was sitting in his chair. Here's a picture of him and me that day. Uh, he was, uh, here's a picture of him and me that day. <laughs> there it goes. And, uh, and, and, and there's Fred in his chair, and there's me. And this was taken after we spent about three hours together that Monday back in March. You can see the, the patches on his chest and uh, the one there on his arm. He's advanced cancer. He was on dialysis. His spine was deteriorating. It, it was just really not looking good. But the doctors were also very hopeful. And so we read scripture, we prayed, we reminisced, 
and then I headed back to the airport and came back essentially the same day uh, here to Scottsdale. And so now, two and a half weeks ago, I'm in Columbus, and his wife calls me and says, they called in hospice, and it's just not good. The reason I told you about the American Airlines switch is that I, I, I'm not sure that the bean counter who canceled the flight for American Airlines back from Phoenix to Scottsdale did so for me, but in God's hands, the timing couldn't have been more better. Because I said to mom and dad, I don't want to cut my short visit short with you, but I really feel led to drive up to Detroit, four hours north of where I was, to try to be with my friend before he dies. Mom and dad said, great, go. So I jumped in a car, it was about 8 o'clock at night, and I drove up to Detroit, and I got there at midnight. Went right up into the hospital, and when I got there, there was nobody there. Kim and the boys had gone home, and Fred was laying there. He was emaciated. You can tell when somebody's dying because of the breathing and all of that, and, and he was just not very conscious. And so I, I said, Fred, it's me, it's Jamie, and I didn't get much of a response. And so I leaned over his bed, and I just said, I just want you to know, I love you, brother. And he whispered back, I love you too. And I tried to have more of a conversation with him, but he was completely out of it. So I stayed about half an hour and I read scripture and, and I prayed and I even sang a little bit with him and encouraged him. Uh, you know, he didn't respond much. And so I, I went about a 15-minute drive from the hospital and got a hotel there in Auburn Hills. And I decided I was going to give it another shot in the morning. So I got up very early in the morning, got to the hospital by 7 and I grabbed a Starbucks on my way up. You'll hear why that's important in a minute. I grabbed a Starbucks on the way up. And I walk into Fred's room, and he's completely out of it still. And so I sat down there, and I was just sitting there praying. And all of a sudden, he looks over at me, and he says, is that a Starbucks? <laughs> I kid you not. He goes, is that a Starbucks? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I want one. He, he hadn't eaten for days. Uh, he hasn't drank. As Kim told me they couldn't even get him. He's got ice chips, you know, next to him. He won't eat. And I said, really? Really? You want a Starbucks? And I want to talk to you. Like, you want a Starbucks? He goes, get me a Starbucks. So I ran down four flights, and I ran over to the Starbucks. And I, I know he likes it black. He was a blue-collar thug, you know. And he get you know, big black coffee at Tim Hortons every day at 5 a.m. on the way to the shop. So I, I got him his coffee, and I, I, I ran up there, and I, and, I, and I gave it to him. He couldn't even hold it. He was so weak. And I took the lid off, it's steaming hot, I think it's going to burn him, and he puts a little bit to his lips, just a little bit, and he goes, oh, that's good. And we put it down. And I said, wow, they must have really drugged you up last night. And he said, yeah, they did. And he said, uh, but he was so weak. And he said, I can't believe you came. And I said, yeah, I came, I wanted to be with my friend. I said, you're, you're going home, do you know that? And he said, yeah, my pastor was in yesterday, and I told him always to level with me, and the pastor told me that I'm, I'm dying. And he looked at me and he said, I can't wait. I can't wait. I spent about three hours with Fred. Eventually, Kim and the boys came in. And we spent three hours just reminiscing about all the, 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 the good old days. We talked about all the church people that we knew back in the day and the ones we liked and the ones that drove us crazy. We reminisced about staff that we had and mostly we reminisced about Fred's journey uh, Fred, back when he married Kim, back in the early 80s, was the farthest thing from God. He didn't want anything to do with God. His wife was a believer. She thought by marrying him, she'd get him to believe her, but it didn't, didn't work at all. And, and, and so I've always said, if you have a woman, though, praying for you in your life, like a mom, a grandma, a wife, just give up now because God's eventually going to get you. And, and eventually God got Fred. And Fred had a radical conversion. I, I, I like to tell people, got converted out of the pool halls of Detroit into God's kingdom. 
And so we were reminiscing about those days, and I saw Fred rise from being a, a new Christian to then running a ministry and being a small group leader, eventually the chairman of the board of our large church in Detroit. And he was such a great leader, but a tender heart for God. Just amazing. Joey eventually came in, and his son, and I said to Joe at one point, I said, have you ever, uh, have you ever read Psalm 40? And, and his son said, well, I, maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know the verse. And I said, it's really your dad's theme verse. They eventually put it on the card that they handed out at his funeral. I, I said, uh, Psalm 40 says this, Joe. It's, it, it's really your dad's story. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, and he set my feet upon a rock. He made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And I said, you know, your dad was the most unlikely candidate to come to Christ. Fred's sitting right there. I said, you were, brother. You are the most unlikely person we ever thought would be a follower of Jesus. And yet here you are, and you've led so many to the Lord. And even on your deathbed, Fred said, I can't wait to be with my Savior. In fact, they put on his card, to live as Christ, to die as gain. It was an amazing homegoing. I left and went back to the airport in Columbus, and um, two days later, Friday morning, Fred died and went to be with the Lord. A week later was his funeral, and uh, his wife, Kim, and I had been texting. I couldn't go in for the funeral, and he had a pastor anyway for the years I'd been gone. But she asked me to pray for the funeral. It was last Saturday, a week ago from today. So right at the time, they're three hours ahead of us, at 8.30 that morning, I was praying like crazy for the funeral. And I got a text about a day later. And she said this to me. She said, hi, Jamie, I want you to know that the memorial service for Fred was incredible. The boys each spoke about their dad. They did a wonderful job. Fred's father spoke. He was 87. I've never seen him more humble and broken. She says, I made a picture DVD of Fred and we showed it. Bethany sang the old rugged cross. The gospel was preached to a crowd of people that will never be under the same roof again. There were high school drinking buddies, lawyers, accountants, bowling alley employees, business owners, investors, unsaved family, firemen, police, just to name a few. I promised Fred three days before he died that I would honor him and we would glorify God and his son, and I believe that we did. I just wanted you to know, dear friend. And I totally rejoiced. It's an amazing story, told quite frankly, thankfully, millions of times over, over the last 2,000 years of Christ followers who had learned to practice the presence of God. They'd learned to be in the presence of Jesus. And when they needed him the most, when they needed his voice and his words, he is there for them. And all I can say is that if a blue-collar thug from the pool halls of Detroit could experience such a radical conversion and then walk with God for decades on end to the point that when his death came at a very early stage, by the way, 60 years old, he and his wife were just looking forward to retiring. They talked all about it. I mean, it's very sad in one sense. But if they could turn that sadness into incredible peace, incredible joy because of the presence of Jesus, then I promise you any fear that you have can see the same. It's true. Jesus is in the business of showing up when we need him the most, of walking on water, and in the midst of the wind and waves of our lives, providing his presence. But you got to be open to it. And you have to embrace him by faith. But when you do, he will never, ever, ever let you down.
John would believe this so much, the gospel writer that we've been looking at, that in his letter, 1 John, he would go on to say this, that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Because John was so convinced that when we can tap into the love and presence of Christ, it really, truly can give a death blow to our fear. We need not fear even something like death because he is that sovereign and that good. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing word and this story that we teach our kids in Sunday school that contains a lot of depth and riches for us today. A story that shows us that fear is very real and that fear will only fuel our doubt, but that faith, fear's antithesis, is also very real and that faith comes through your presence and through your power and goodness in our lives, your very word to us. So, Father, I pray that as we think of people like my friend Fred who have dealt with this fear in his own life and had peace even when he went home to be with you, And his wife has peace, even missing her husband. God, I pray that we would apply these same things to our own lives, that we would practice the presence of Jesus in our lives, the very real presence, and allow our fear to be dealt with adequately. God, thank you that this is a promise, that this is truth, and that you won't let us down. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.